Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And there's all the scientific evidence too that shows how a gratitude practice is so transformative. And it's related to how we see the world. We constantly parse out the world. Like if I told you, hey, Serena, go out on the street and um, look for everything that's a color red. Mm. You put on this filter on your brain and you're going to start seeing red cars and stop signs and fire hydrants and all everything that's red is going to jump out to you. And so when we put these filters on our brains and we start to see something in a particular way, it's the, it's the, um, it's the scientific side of manifestation. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sarah, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm so glad to be back. Our conversation last time was just, it. I kept thinking about everything we were talking about before. So now what, three years later, let's, yeah. let's go. Well, a lot has happened since we uh, last had you here. I mean, your last conversation here was so riveting that we actually managed to turn it into an animated short, which we will link up in the show notes for any of you who are not familiar with Sarah's story. But um, I want to start a little bit differently this time. And I want to start by asking you, where did you grow up? And what impact did where you're from end up having on your life? Mm, so I grew up in Palo Alto, California, but I was actually born in Heidelberg, Germany. So my parents were living abroad and they had two babies um, while they were living in Germany. They lived in Germany for five years and then they moved to Idaho. Actually, they moved back to their house in Idaho. They stayed there for a few months and then they moved into a house in Palo Alto. Um, and I grew up there. I lived there until I was 18. My mom still lives there. Then I actually I went to college when I was 17. Um, and growing up in Palo Alto has a tremendous amount of privilege and benefits and then also a lot of eye opening eye-opening things that maybe people don't don't necessarily know about. Um, Palo Alto was just recently rated as one of the highest, it has one of the highest cities with one of the highest rates of teen suicide because it's so competitive. Um, when I went to high school, there, I think 20 people in my class went to Stanford and 40 people got perfect SATs. And there's just a, like a, a really, um, huge range of competition and as well as privilege. There are people who are the, the kids of startup founders from the 80s and from the 70s and um, really, really wealthy people. And it was interesting because we weren't necessarily like that. Um, I am, you know, I'm as close to the 1% as you can get. I'm probably in the top 3% if you look at my, like who I am and where I'm from. And I'm extremely lucky and extremely privileged. And it's why my work um, is so important to me. You know, the work that I 
try to do with charity water and and in augmenting women's voices and and people of color and um I spend a lot of my time tutoring and helping um and and why I'm so passionate about politics in some ways too but um when we grew up we were in a position of relative not poverty but uh not privilege I don't know how to say it we so my dad went to Stanford and he had a he got a, his PhD and while we were growing up he was making a graduate stipend of $27,000 and we had four kids in our house. So when we went to school, they'd have all these fancy programs like, oh, pay a $400 extra and take your kid to the gold rush and learn about the gold rush or like go do this like fancy schmancy something program, after school program. And my parents were like, what? No. <laughs> you can read a book. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize later that it was because we there were just four kids and not a tremendous amount of cash to go around. So uh, we got our seventh generation hand-me-downs. You know, I joke that seventh generation soap was made cool by our family because um, we had our three cousins older than us and then my older sister and then me and then my brother and my younger sister. And the seven of us would wear the same pants. So by the time they got down to my younger sister, they were like 1979 pants that she wore in 1991. And she was definitely not cool. Mm. Wow. Okay. So many questions come just from that. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, one, I'm I'm curious, uh, did the sort of internal money story change from sibling to sibling? Because I I can relate to what you're talking about. My dad was a postdoctoral student for most of of the time I was in you know, elementary school, junior high, it was when I was a soft, in fact, I shared a bedroom with my sister up until I was in the mm. 10th grade. Uh, and, and I'm curious, uh, like, did the internal money narrative change with your siblings as this whole thing sort of evolved? And, and what was it like for each of you? Like, do you guys have different money stories as a result of having experienced this? Srini, I've never had anyone ask me that. And yes, Yes, it's totally true. My Actually, my older sister is the one who probably thinks of our family as the poorest because my dad finished his master's and doctorate degrees and then went on to work at Space Systems L'Oreal and at private aerospace companies. And so our dynamic changed. You know, we had one Volvo that we shared for a decade and then they got a new car and it was like, ooh, guys, we have a Ford Windstar minivan. Like, we get to drive around in the big white elephant. Um but yeah, the money story definitely changed, but it's interesting to see what what I hang on to and what comes up time and time again. And and even now as I um I've written about minimalism a little bit and and my behavior around clothes and around spending money and my um real desire to save money. Uh-huh. Like save money and keep money. Um I'm sure that's rooted in how I grew up. I mean, we when I my first job was I was eight when I first started my um, first kind of quote unquote entrepreneurial venture. Like I got out our wagon and I made a whole bunch of cookies and I had a lemonade stand and my mother made me make an Excel spreadsheet. I shared this with my sister. She made me make an Excel spreadsheet and we like added up the cost of all of the materials. And I was like, okay, if a bag of flour is, you know, like two ninety nine, but we used a third of the bag of flour, then it was 67 cents of this and then that. And like we added it up and then we recorded not just the revenue, but the profit. I had to pay her back for the materials and I knew the margins of my cookies. I, I was eight <laughs> to do this. Um, and then I, by the time I graduated from college, so we also had an agreement in our family, we could go to state school because my parents could afford that. Okay. They, they saved pretty aggressively, but they said no private schools. I did go to a private school because I got a scholarship to cover the cost. Um, 
to make it equivalent to a state school, which was amazing. But uh, by the time I got to college and graduated from college, I'd had about 18, 15 to 18 different jobs at that point. I used to work um, before school and after school in high school. So I got up at five and I was a lifeguard in the morning and then I went to school. And then afterwards I studied in the afternoons and then I went to swim practice from five to 7 p.m. Then I ate my face off because I I couldn't ever stop eating. I was so hungry. Um, And then some nights, Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturday mornings, I would work uh, at the pool again from 5 p.m. till 7 p.m. Or I'm sorry, from 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. So I had opening shifts and closing shifts and summer jobs. Some summers I worked four different jobs. And by the time I graduated from college, I was really confused by the word entry level on job applications. They're like, well, this is an entry level position. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, what, how do I count my experience? Like what I may be new to this job, but I, I was running pivot tables and Excel sheets when I was 12. So I, I, don't know if that's true. That's a little, maybe a little bit of a fabrication, but <laughs> like I'll, 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 re- I'll retract that one a little bit. So it was really always fascinating to me. And I found myself really frustrated with the state of the resume and, and how we were applying to jobs and what it looked like to sell your experience to somebody, especially when I knew that I knew how to do things. And yet um, people looked at my bachelor's degree and they were like, oh, you must be brand new. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, um, another thing that you, you said that struck me was um, how competitive an envi- environment Palo Alto is to grow up in, you know, like the teen suicide rate and all of that, uh, yeah. which actually, you know, makes me wonder about how you think about parenting. Because I know that you have, you know, recently entered motherhood because I've gotten a, a sort of, you know, front row seat to it via Instagram, which has been very entertaining <laughs> to, to watch. Yeah. Um, But I'm curious, like, uh, having been exposed to this just insane amount of sort of, you know, personal development material, you know, um, how to live a more meaningful life, you know, self-improvement, everything that, you know, we're kind of immersed in as a byproduct of the work that we do. How is that and also the experience of what you saw in Palo Alto, um, you know, how has that affected your approach to parenting? Hmm. So I think that's such a good question. So I think um, one of the kindest things my parents ever did for me was they limited the number of advanced placement classes that I could take. Like there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, I'm going to take five in my junior year and I'm going to take five in my senior year. And my parents are like, why don't you pick two that you're really interested in? And AP classes in high school are um, like taking college prep or college level courses while you're in high school. And and what happened was a lot of people were burned out by the end of high school. By the time they got to college, they are drinking a ton and they were tired because they'd been working so hard to be these perfect people and they didn't know who they were. Um, they just did, they checked off all the boxes and they worked themselves into the ground. And so when I think now about parenting, yeah, I just had my first kid. He's a cutie, but I'm biased. So I have no objectivity when it comes to him. Um, there's something biological in that. Like you look at this thing that looks like you and you're like, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're great. Um, I swear there's something in the hormones where like, cuteness is a survival mechanism too. Like I don't think anyone would put up with the amount of work that it takes to make children if you didn't have this very strong hormonal link to this thing in front of you that's taking all of your time. (laughs) Like like there's like the biology is working Yeah. um, because this is, you know, top three things that I've ever put this much energy towards. Uh Um, But so when I think about being a parent, I think one of the most important things is kind of... It's kind of a paradox. You have to just let go 
And, and to me, it comes in these like jokey forms. We have these conversations with Leo, my kid, um, where, where I'll do, I'll do my best. I'm like, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to set some great boundaries. I'm going to do all these things. And then I look at my husband and I look back at my kid and I'm like, Hey kid. So here's what parents do. They kind of mess with you a little bit. Like, we're just going to screw you up. We're not going to try to, but it's going to happen. And your job is that you get to go to therapy for years to undo what I'm doing. And I think we all just, it's just these patterns of these stories that come down. And once I realized that no matter what I did, there'll be something that doesn't work yeah. or there'll be something that, you know, messes up my kid a little bit. I'm kind of like, all right, we're cool. I messed up. You'll be messed up. We'll figure it out. We'll go from here. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I remember Philip McKernan when I asked him the questions very similar to this. He said, no matter what you do, you're going to fuck your kids up. I'm like... Okay, that's that's kind of a relief, and and you know I, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Parenthood. Um, yes, one of my show. absolute favorite shows. And the very end, which I'm going to ruin it for people who are listening, but there's this great line uh, where you know uh, Craig T. Nelson is with with the oldest daughter, and they're having this conversation, and he just says to her, "He's like parents screw their kids up. That's just what we do." Totally you look we do that. our best and we screw you up like, and, and you're like there's such an honest moment in, in, in which you suddenly realize you're like okay you know yeah i mean my parents are far from perfect that and you know like you said i mean you know it's taken therapy and immense amounts of like you know personal development work to undo whatever bad things they did but you realize you're like oh okay this is an incredibly difficult job where there's no you know instruction manual in which you know things will go according to plan Exactly. And also, I think it gives me a little bit more um, empathy and kind of eye opening awareness of, of how hard it must have been for my parents. Mm. Because I'm realizing that most parents don't know what they're doing. I, like, we're just making it up. There isn't an instruction manual. We're doing the best we can on limited sleep and limited time. Mm. And we're and we're making decisions on the fly. It's not like we can tell tell our kid like, let me get back to you after I research this. You know, <laughs> they've just taken a like giant can of sardines and like pour them in their eye at the um <laughs> like at the table, at the dining room table, and they're like, I'm just gonna do this with that. And you're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like the other day my little one fell and he chipped his tooth and I was like uh, what do I do? Like, what do I do? And my husband was like, he's fine. He's like, he's just going to have a little chip in his tooth. And I was like, but did I ruin him? And he's like, no, this is like the least of it. He's going to run into a wall tomorrow. I'll probably give him a bloody nose on Friday. Accidentally, of course, you know, <laughs> accidentally. Yeah. Um, and we realized like parenting is just, I mean, it's not a giant shit show, but it is a little bit. Yeah. What's surprised you uh, about your son? Like, what are the, the, the things, you know, you may have seen this. There's a documentary series on Netflix called The Beginning of Life. And they, you know, it's just a bunch of shots of babies, you know, followed by like really interesting conversations with child development specialists. But um, I, I'm curious, like, you know, what has what has surprised you? Like, what is what has it been, you know, like to have this incredibly um, curious human being in your world? I think what's really interesting is the amount of determination there is, uh -huh. is it's baked into you. Like it's not like it's something that's been like pressed out of us over time. But the beginning of a human life, you see how innately curious and innately fascinated and just unbelievably determined that they are like he like he tries something he doesn't work he tries it again tries it again tries it again tries it. like I'm exhausted just watching him sometimes but he never 
stop. Well, uh, there's occasions when he's like practicing walking and then after an hour of it, he just flops on the floor and like throws his head back. He's like, oh, that was hard. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you've been doing that for an hour. Like if I did what you were doing, that'd be really hard. Um, but it's, it's amazing the amount of determination. And then I think the other thing that really, really surprises me is how fast they learn. He will look at me and right now we're teaching him baby sign language um, because between he's 13 months old and developmentally between like eight months and 18 months um, around the turning point of age one, it's easier for them to uh, learn hand gestures and sign language. And there's still just a lot happening in their brain for them to be able to make speech and sounds like it's a really complicated thing to learn speech. You have to understand, you have to vocalize, you have to try, you have to be able to make all of the shapes and sounds, the S's and the T's and the... Um, consonants and the patterns are really hard. So hand gestures are easier. So we're starting to teach him sign language. And I looked at him and I made the, um, the shape for nurse or milk, um, which it looks like, like imagine that you're milking a cow. So I'm squeezing my hand like I'm milking an udder. So that's the shape for nurse. And by the end of the day, he looked at me and he opened his hand and he closed his hand and he opened his hand and he closed his hand. And I was like, holy shit. Like it just took you less than a day to figure this out. And the next day he learned the stop sign language. And the next day he demonstrated want. And I was just like, oh my God, you are like, you go to sleep and then you wake up from a nap two hours later and new neurons have been baked in. Like you are, you're literally like, you know, the software upgrades we have on our computer where it's like, would you like to go to sleep now? That's what I feel like my kid is like, and then it's like rebooted with a new system. Mm. Why do you think that, uh, we lose that determination and how do you get it back? Hmm. I have a theory that middle school is the worst time (laughs) in all of humanity. (laughs) I, I, I think I share that theory with you. Um, there's actually some studies out there that say it would be better for parents to just take their kids out of middle school and stay at home than not go to middle school. And, and, um, some of the damaging things that we do are we put kids into age cohorts with only their same age group, which is possibly the worst thing we can do to children. Like what children might need. And I think this is true of all people, um, is, is a diversity of age experiences. So that child and more than, more than just their parents. So, so that, eight-year-old and that 12-year-old needs buddies that are 16 and 18, like older kids, older brothers, older sisters. They need mentors. And then they also need like, let's say 20 parents. They need aunts and uncles. And if they're not blood aunts and uncles, then they need other parents that they can go to when they're embarrassed to talk to their own parents. You know, especially I'll speak from a little girl's perspective because that's my background. But when you're 12, 13, 14, 15, and you are like, your body is changing in front of you, you're getting breasts, you're getting your period, you're starting to like have uncomfortable feelings, you grow pubic hair for the first time, you're like, things are just changing. Sometimes you don't want to necessarily go to your parents because they might make a too big a deal out of it. But you want to be able to go to that older woman friend, like an aunt and just be like, um, I might need a bra, you know, and instead what you get, and this was my experience in middle school is you go to school and you're not wearing a bra yet. Cause you don't know that you have to do it. And then you have guys making fun of you. And that is traumatizing. <laughs> it's like really traumatizing to have people make fun of you, um, as you're changing shape. And like, I imagine from a boy's perspective, like your voice is changing and you have to put textbooks in front of your crutch because you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's just as bad for boys. It's just so hard. Yeah. And, um, 
And then you read books like, oh, what's that book with Piggy? I'm forgetting the name. Um, I think I remember it. Oh, my gosh. We're going to have to f- find it later. I'm, I like want to go Google it right now. But that terrible, terrible book about uh, what happens when a bunch of boys get stranded on an island and how competitive oh, they are. Oh, Lord, Lord, uh, Lord of the Flies. Yeah, Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and how cruel and how mean. Because because we're hormonally, we're still like our brains aren't fully developed. They're not developed until we're 25. And so we're there and we're at an age when we're like bathing in a sea of hormones. And then also we're like learning to lie because we have to get better at communication, but we get worse at it. Oh, my God. It's the worst time. So my husband and I have decided that uh, we're going to have one or two kids. We're not sure yet. Um, In middle school, we want to travel the world. So we want to pull them both out and go live abroad, because if you learn another language, I think that's better than any middle school. Wow. Um, well, yeah, having, you know, when I look back at middle school, I, I, I look at it as one of the most like just awful periods of my life. Like, and not only that, I hated my parents during middle school <laughs> so much so that I didn't even invite them to open house one year because I was embarrassed by their Indian accents. Oh, like, you know, so I, I, I completely get that. Um, I'm really curious, you know, to, to talk to you about something that I saw. And you may have seen it. There's a new Netflix Netflix series called 13 Reasons Why, um, which is a, about, a, a you know, a suicide of a girl uh, who's in, you know, uh, high school. And, you know, they, they did outtakes on Q&A at the end. And they said, you know, uh, like for adults today to kind of say, oh, you know, getting bullied and cyberbullied seems ridiculous. You need to, you know, become thick skin. And they're saying, you know, what you don't realize is a lot of the things that people, you know, who are teenagers in junior high, um, you know, high school today are dealing with. Um, they're dealing with things that they're not capable of even develop dealing with because of the way the brain is developed at that age. So, like, the sting of something feels much more serious than it actually is, which is resulting in a lot of problems. And I, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about this as a parent. Oh my God. I like, I'm a little bit scared about the world that we have in front of us. I mean, I'm also very optimistic. Um, it's, it's something that I I look forward to the new challenges and the new adventures, but I just, I think this, the current 20 year period we're in where everybody's online and there's unfiltered, unfettered access and, um, and, people can be so unbelievably cruel. I mean, I remember the sting of even just like a, a, the slip of a comment and it's true. Your brain is just, it's categorizing everything on, on like a survival level, you know, do these people like me? If they don't like me, I might die is what it feels like inside of you at that age. And I, I want to go back and tell my past self now that I've made it like, Oh my God, it gets so much better. Like it just does. Like, 24 was a thousand times better than 16 and 18 and 28 was a thousand times better than that. And like my thirties are exponentially better than that. But it does give me a little bit of fear because there was a study I was reading recently, um, where uh, it said that boys, by the time they reach 16 or 18, it might be even younger. Mm-hmm. It may be like 12 or 14, 50% of all boys have seen not just porn, but hardcore porn. And the effect that it's having is um, it actually damages the ability of boys to be able to experience full sexual experiences later on in life. Like they're no longer able to map these wires in their brain. And I'm not I'm not versed enough to know how it works. Sure. Um, 
like in the cognitive neuroscience of it, but there's something happening where it's blocking our ability to feel emotions and our ability to feel pleasure. And that like, that should be sending off alarm bells in all of our heads. And then everybody's got a phone. And like, I looked at porn when I was growing up because you're like, we're like, oh my God, what is this? I want to see what (laughs) this is. Good Lord. They do what? Right? Like, I'm never looking at that again. And then two weeks later, you're with your friends and you're like, well, let's figure out what that is, you know? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. 
So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I, I remember asking a question once on Facebook. I was like, what was the very first thing you ever searched for on the internet? And I was like, if people are honest, especially guys, every one of them will say porn. I remember it very distinctly. I walked in my dad's office. I was like, ah, this internet thing. I wonder if there are pictures on here. Um, totally. I think that's just, the, you know, it's one of your most, I don't know why that would, that is, you know, the thing you're most drawn to naturally. Um, but it, it's really interesting to, to hear you say that. So um, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, you know, when we were Speaking three years ago, we really, you know, we focused on your work as as a writer, but I mean, so much of what you do has evolved. So I'm curious, kind of one, how has becoming a parent impacted your work and, um, you know, vice versa? And, and, you know, how, like, what have you been up to for the last three years? (laughs) Other Um, than, you know, making a new human. Right. Making a new human. That was one of my to-do list items. Just kidding. Um, Uh, So one of the things that goes part and parcel with writing that I really love doing is teaching. And since we last spoke, I think I was in the middle of putting some online courses together. But I teach a writing course. I teach a content strategy course. I've teach. I've taught a um, course called Grace and Gratitude, which is one of my favorite things ever because it's just a it's a two week practice in gratitude. And I had some amazing student responses. And this isn't scientific evidence. This is just anecdotal. But someone told me afterwards, she's like, you know, I've been trying to get pregnant for four years and I took your course and then I conceived. And I'm just like, what? How? What? How did that work? You know, well, uh, we don't need to go into the graphic details of how that worked, but, <laughs> but, um, but it's 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 the power there's and there's all the scientific evidence too that shows how a gratitude practice is so transformative, uh, and it's related to how we see the world. We constantly parse out the world. Like if I told you, hey, Serena, go out on the street and um, look for everything that's a color red. Mm. You put on this filter on your brain and you're going to start seeing red cars and stop signs and fire hydrants and all everything that's red is going to jump out to you. And so when we put these filters on our brains and we start to see something in a particular way, it's the, it's the, um, it's the scientific side of manifestation. So actually, it's what I did uh, before I met my husband. Uh, I had been dating a tremendous number of people. Um, I don't know if I've, I think I told you the story on the last time, but I don't remember. I don't think uh, you so, okay. So, um, I was engaged when I was 25. That to, I remember actually. Yeah. I think I told you this and that one didn't work out. And so I threw myself into dating, into dating apps. I was on like match.com and, um, okay Cupid and a whole bunch of other things. And I think I went on 30 dates in a year. And at the end of it, I got exhausted because none of them were working the way that I wanted to. And I felt I was 27, but I still felt my biological clock ticking because I'm an obsessive planner. I was like, but I have to have babies. When is that going to happen? Um, and then I, I kind of let go. I said, I don't want to date anymore. I just want to write out what my, what, uh, like my ideal partner would look like. And instead of listing like here are the 27 different perfect qualities that someone has, um, my friend encouraged me to limit it to just three things. And so I wrote this story about these three things. They were kindness, activity, and intelligence were my top three. Um, and, and it took me a long time. I wrote out, I wrote out 10 things that I really wanted in a partner. And then I wrote out five and then I narrowed it down. And one of them was athletic. And then I realized, no, they don't have to be athletic. Like we don't have to swim to Alcatraz together, but I need you to be able to go on a walk with me. Like we need to be able to go on a long hike. We have to meet somewhere in the middle. I can do the swimming thing. We don't have to go do triathlons together. Um, 
kindness became my number one. How you treat another human being is just such a critical skill. And I could, and I started to be able to see how my friends and the people I was hanging out with really owned that quality. Um, and then intelligence, you know, I'm a huge book geek and I wanted to geek out with people. And that was like a no brainer for me. So I wrote this story and I still have it in one of my many, many moleskins. And I remember that I wrote it like it was a real human being, not like it was an idol. And the story was something like, I want this person to be, oh, my husband's going to laugh if he hears this now. Um, I want this person to be good looking to me, but not too handsome. Because I don't want to be nervous all the time. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be nervous all the time. And I think my husband is the most beautiful person in the world. But And I've showed him this. And he's like, oh, great. So what am I? <laughs> you know, he like reads it back. Um, but like, good looking to me and not too handsome. Because I think if somebody was like strikingly gorgeous, it would make me really nervous. And I want them to be really, really smart and kind. And, and I wrote this story about like, what they looked like and who they were and how they behaved in the world. And I met Alex the next week. Wow. And it, I, again, correlation and anecdotal evidence does not equal proof. Um, so it, my, my, the scientific side of me says, I, well, that's a great story, but that doesn't mean it's replicable. But I do think there's something there. And there is evidence that when we paint pictures of what we want in the world, we call forth that thing because of the way our brain works about how we see the world. And he and I didn't start dating until a year later, but we met, we were friends, we wrote letters back and forth for a long time, a hundred thousand words we counted. And, um, and then I, I flew to New York, uh, because I was going to be part of a conference. I was a fellow at a conference called the feast in New York city. And I told him I was coming and we went to the same dinner and it was like, like, how fast can I make out with you? Like, <laughs> like how fast can we get together. And that weekend, we made out all weekend. And then uh, we started dating right after that. Uh, before we get sort of into the, the, the next evolution of your work and what you're doing at startups and, and some of the things we were talking about, um, I want to go back to this conversation about swimming and approach mm. it in a different way than we did before, because I know mm -hmm. it's a huge part of your life. Um, but what I'm more interested in is is why you have this sort of um, relationship with water in particular, um, because mm. I, I share that with you. Um, there's something that is incredibly powerful about it to me, and I'm very curious, like, what it is about water in particular that draws you to it? Oh, these are such a good questions. And I realize I didn't even answer fully your previous question. Um, but we can wind our way back yeah. to to the past three years. We'll get there. Yeah. And if we don't, people can, people <laughs> can email me, you guys can just do, say, Sarah, you didn't answer the question. Um, okay, so water. Have you read the book Blue Mind? Yeah, well, Have you I've heard, heard of Wallace it? Nichols here as a guest yeah. before. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Okay, well, then you know more about this than me. But um, the well, like water do you know much about Ayurveda and yoga philosophy? To some degree. We just had a guest here who uh, whose episode will <laughs> you guys will have heard by the time this is live. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So there's there's different doshas or constitutions. Um, there's pitta, vata and kapha. Did she talk about did she or yeah, he talk about did. this? Yeah. Okay, great, great. So I'll build on this, which is I am a Vata Pitta. And a Vata personality type is like airy and windy and um, kind of out of outer space. And so for me in particular, water feels like a container. It feels like it's finally holding me in one place. And once you have some sort of structure or container, and to me, it's it's actually just the sensitivity of my skin. 
So when I have something that's touching my skin, whether it's a weighted blanket or a bath or um, a massage or like yoga in a certain way, once that condition is met or once I'm walking around, it grounds me. It starts to pull me down. And it it feels like first I have a container around my body and then second that my mind and my body begin to get into sync. Because otherwise I feel like they're spinning at different speeds. And when I lose my mind and my body, when they get distorted and separated from each other, that's when I feel the most um, um, like jittery. That's when my anxiety can come up. That's when my depression can come up. That's when I start to feel like I get a lot of insomnia. I don't sleep. When I get insomnia now, I have a whole bunch of tools that I use. First, I write. I I just open up a journal and I write for 30 minutes to get a bunch of stuff out of my mind. And then I start moving in yoga. And if that doesn't work, I take a shower. And then if, and then I'm back to sleep. And I just notice how fascinating it is that each of these processes are about moving ideas and pieces and things and even matter, cellular matter through my body to create some sort of peaceful stillness. Wow. Um, you brought up depression. I couldn't let that go. I, I'm curious. I, I, I wasn't familiar. I didn't know that. So I'm curious. I didn't know that you dealt with it at all. Yeah. Um, so I use it both in the um, colloquial sense of like, oh, I was having a rough day or like I'm having a hard week. And then also um, my my particular affliction, if you will, is probably a tendency to be high, strong and anxious. Uh-huh. Like. I've always had a little bit of insomnia. In college, I had a lot of insomnia. Um, And that's when I started taking Benadryl, which is essentially Tylenol PM. It it was associated particularly with performance anxiety. So we would have a series of back-to-back swim meets, and it would be a lot of pressure, and I'd be up, like, nervous until 2 a.m., and I'd have to get up at 5 a.m. to go swimming. But one of the things I realized, this was kind of a huge aha moment in my swimming career that applies to everything, like it applies to this this conference I was just at three days ago, is that everybody out there is operating under an imperfect set of circumstances. Like I got up on the blocks and I realized that it's more than likely that most of these people haven't gotten a proper night's sleep and that getting a proper night's sleep is great, but it's not a prerequisite for success. You just do the best you can with what you're given. Um, but so, but so in terms of depression, I had some pretty, pretty rough depression. Speaking of middle school, um, (laughs) (laughs) in high school, like I, uh, my freshman year of high school, I was really, really struggling. My parents had just separated. Um, and they abruptly moved us out of the house and we were living in a new place. I went to try out for the high school water polo team and then I quit within two weeks. And and then I just really withdrew into myself. I tried to make some friends. I had a really hard time making friends in my high school, um, early high school days. And it's funny because if I talk to people now who knew me in high school, they don't know that to be true. They don't see that. They, they weren't like witness to my inner life. But I was really withdrawn and my mom got really worried about me and she took me to uh, a couple of therapists and they recommended immediately to put me on antidepressants. And when I was when I was that age, I said, no, I was like, no, I don't I don't want to just numb myself. I don't want to medicate. I don't think that's the answer, which I'm really grateful that I chose that. Uh, um, even though medication can work for some people, I thought it was kind of a blunt 
answer, like catch all for something that felt more complicated. And then when I was in college, uh, one of the things that I did that was so helpful to me, and I recommend this to everybody, like college counselors and therapists are so cheap. Either they're free because they have one on, on site on school or what they were for us was like $25 a session, which maybe feels expensive when you're in, in school as a student, but I don't know, pick up a a side job, like work a cash register just to be able to pay for that because having, so this is super important to me and I want to, I want to emphasize this and maybe, and maybe talk about it more. The ability to have an expert look at your mind and analyze what's going on and uncover the depths and ask you provoking questions and guide you through maybe really uncomfortable matter, but towards a lighter side is, is one of the privileges of a lifetime. And there's a stigma associated with depression, like, oh, this is bad, or there's something wrong with you. And I think the privilege of working with a psychologist, I've worked with one now for I don't know, how old am I? 33, so almost 20 years on and off, is is one of the tenets of why I think um, my writing is where it's at and my intelligence is where it's at. It's because this one-on-one work with a guided person has been unbelievable. And and I'm I'm I like was at the coffee shop across the street, and uh, somebody was like, "Oh, what's your day?" And I was like, "Oh yeah." And then I go to therapy, and he was like, "Oh, like it was this bad thing." And I realized that I live in this bubble where it's not a bad thing, and it's to me, it's not a stigma. I think it's it's absolutely wonderful to talk about. And and if you look at the creative histories of of any artist, right? Like there's a lot of suffering going on and there's a lot of angst and neuroses. I mean, what does it take to have Van Gogh cut off his ear, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's just I don't know. I think it's I think it's such an opportunity and and it's again something I'm really passionate about is like it should not be an elite privilege. Yeah. Like therapy and mental health is something that should be available and readily available and accessible to everyone. Wow. Well, thank you for that. That was that was beautiful. Um, let's get back to your work. Uh, sure. What you have been up to. I mean, because I know you worked at a startup and, and, you know, you were talking about the research that you've been doing. So let's spend some time talking about um, what you've been up to and kind of, you know, and what is the underlying theme of your work now? Um, because, you know, mm-hmm. I'd always kind of seen you as a writer. And, of course, our animated short pretty much demonstrated that. Um, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it, like it, as I've, I've sort of gotten to know you and kind of witnessed everything you've done, it's become much more multifaceted. So I, I'm curious, you know, uh, where all that has taken you. Mm, yeah. So, so earlier I was talking about the courses that I had taught. So when I moved to New York City, because my now husband, the guy I was dating and wrote, you know, constructed out of a piece of paper, if you will, um, lived in New York City. He lived in Brooklyn. I moved across the country and we got together. Uh, I launched my own business again officially, and I started teaching courses and doing some consulting with people, mostly working with CEOs to tell their stories. So, um, I got to work with a lot of, a lot of really smart, really talented people. I worked with a presidential innovation fellow on her book, which was really amazing. Um, and, and, uh, startup here in New York city, I knew, I knew a couple people in the startup scene and they were looking for somebody who could teach and write. And, and I said, great, you know, I'm from Silicon Valley. I tried to get away from that, but bring it on, let's do it. Um, and I joined the startup scene and very quickly I realized how much overlap there is between 
thinking about interpersonal communication and systems design. And my background, I think we talked about this on the last podcast, but I spent five years as an architect. I actually went to three years of graduate school for city planning, which is by and large, a study in systems and a study in systems thinking. Mm-hmm. How does traffic flow? How does traffic move? How do people move? Where are the green spaces? How do you coordinate everything? What are the economics of it all? What do you plan for? What are the policy? What are the edges? What are the constraints? Um, very applicable and very related to startup design and business design. Mm-hmm. So when I was at this startup, I, I, I started a couple years ago, two and a half years ago, um, I was the sixth hire and then we grew to 12 people and then we added like 15 contractors between teachers and um, technologists and PR representatives and you name it. And so all of a sudden we were this team of 35 and I was promoted to the first VP. So we went from a flat, relatively flat organization to oh gosh, we need organizational structure. We need to figure out like who reports to who and how do we keep this streamlined and what does it mean to grow somebody from, grow a team from five people to 10 people and 20 people. And and I, I started along with Matan. I think you've had him on the show yeah, too, Matan Grafal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's brilliant. So we started looking at systems design and leadership design and management design and what does it mean and how does it work? And one of the things we did was we started mapping the... Um, the connection points among individuals. So on a team of five, and this is this is where it gets like just it, mind-blowing and kind of an obvious but non-obvious way. On a team of five, you have, a, you know that game where it's like, you have five people. How many pairs of two can you make? Mm-hmm. Like, pop quiz. Well, I'll let everyone like guess and write it on a napkin. Da, 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 da. You're right. <laughs> but it's 10. You have 10 points of connection on a team of five. And you're like, okay, well, with 10 points of 10 pairs of people in any configuration, you can still talk to everybody at the table. You can still sit around a table and interruptions aren't a problem. You can flack somebody. You can email somebody. You can like move Google Docs around. You can walk by somebody's table and you have all the information you need and you don't necessarily need a robust system. You don't need to externalize the information. You don't need like a wiki and a set of processes. When you get to 10 people, when you double in size, you have 45 connections. And those are just pairs. And then when you double again to 20 people, there's 190 permutations of pairs of people. Mm. And what that means is your startup starts to feel like a really bad game of telephone gone wrong. Like you don't know who's making decisions. You don't know how the decisions are made. You might be frustrated because the you used to report to the CEO and see him every day. And now you have an intermediary. You, somebody might have been hired and you're like, wait, this isn't what I signed up for. And as a CEO of this organization, you will feel like there'll be a moment of surprise because what happens here is your first person quits and you weren't expecting it. So this is the situation that I was in. And we started mapping it and studying it and implementing new processes for how do you get the best out of a team? Mm -hmm. And we studied introverts and extroverts and meeting design um, and non-meetings and how do you communicate? And I have a whole list, like Srini, our podcast could be like eight hours long (laughs) because I could go through each of the things that we did. Um, But we started implementing external communication processes, which means where does the communication live? Because if the answer to a question lives inside somebody's head at 20 people, you're doing it wrong. That was such an important lesson for us to learn. It had to be documented that the 
results of a meeting couldn't just live inside of everybody's brain, but it had to be put somewhere. An internal blog, a wiki, a standardized decision-making process. And it's super frustrating for startups at this stage because what they're used to, their history, their knowledge of what it means to be their business is that they can move fast and break things and they can just reach out to anybody. And all of a sudden you go in and you add constraints and it can piss people off but you have to move a little bit slower to keep moving fast because if you don't do these things your startup actually really goes down and it becomes the pits and people start hating working there yeah so let's uh dial it back a little bit i'm curious how was how would one apply this entire sort of framework in context to their own life and how do you do it in your personal life so these structures are all pretty similar in some regards. It's whether it's a network of friends or it's a family or it's a solopreneur with four contractors. Like most of us can find an analogy or analogous situation that looks like this. So if you have more than one person who's making decisions, who makes the decisions or how are decisions made? And who owns each area? Like my husband and I, um, we agree to divide and conquer because if we're both making both of the decisions all the time, or if we're both making decisions jointly all of the time, it leaves us no brain power and no space for creative things or fun things or reading books or basically things that light us up as human beings. Mm -hmm. So I take care of the food ordering. He doesn't give a damn, right? And (laughs) he takes care of paying these bills over here. And like, I don't care. And we just, we sit down and we map things out. And it's less gendered and more context specific. Because I happen to work from our home office and he commutes to work, there are things he cannot do at the home. Like it wouldn't make sense. He couldn't do them until 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. when he got home. And because I happen to work from the home, I can take care of these things that are around here. And if it switches, which it probably will for many, many years to come, depending on who's traveling and who's doing what, uh, we just continue to make the location and the decision making. We give each person an area of ownership. Um, All right, you're going to take care of these things. You're going to take care of these things. And these are the things that we're going to check in on. And for a while, actually, in our early, early days of, of living together and and me starting my business, we had a process called Scrooge, which you're allowed to spend $30 on anything. This is going to surprise people because I think people spend a lot more money than this, but you could spend $30 on anything without asking. But once we got to $30 or higher, we'd send a text to each other and we'd be like, does Scrooge approve? And Scrooge was this, this mythical creature in between the two of us that we both got to adopt and be. So I'd be like, hey, I think we need this $40 thing. What does Scrooge say? And he'd be like, Scrooge says maybe we should save that money for the vacation we want to go on. And I'd be like, damn, Scrooge, that asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then, and then we would that would be our kind of shorthand for whether or not we should spend money on something. And it took the like the personification of it, like, oh, you're the one who's saying no to me or I'm the one who's saying no to you out of it. And it let us also be reassured that money wouldn't just be disappearing somewhere else without knowledge. I think a lot of that frustration about who's making the decisions, how do you communicate around the decisions is just a critical framework for all people, whether it's a startup or a company or a family unit or roommates. Wow. This has been uh, poetic as I, as I kind of expected it would be. I mean, I I think we could talk for a good two or three hours if we really wanted to. Um, (laughs) It, you know, I feel like this is one of those conversations that we'll have to revisit and, and something tells me we'll have to bring you back again. <laughs> Another three years. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. um, I want to finish with uh, my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. And I am very curious to see how this will have changed for uh, three years later. Um, what do you mm. think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. I would say, I don't remember my last answer, by the way, I would say a commitment to the truth and a commitment to growth. Hmm. So you're either James Clear, who I just watched give a talk this past week, um, talked about the 1% rule for growth. Every time you make a 1% improvement, and let's say you make one every single day or every single week, you add it into the bank and it builds like compound interest. So all of these micro small things that you're doing to improve yourself um, really add up if you have a dedication to them. And you'll see this in people who are are making incredible work. Uh, and for me, some of the areas that I'm working on right now might seem really small, but they matter so deeply to me. And I think they are part of that that 1% change. Like my integrity with my word. Will I show up when I say I'm going to show up? Do the words that come out of my mouth represent who I am and what I actually do? And so many times I think there's just such a sloppiness with our integrity, with our word. People will say, oh yeah, see you later. And they have no intention of seeing you later. And then, oh, I'll call you soon. And they never will. Um, or yeah, I meant to get to that. Like, like, I think that's one of the greatest afflictions of our time, aside from what, what the work that you're doing on attention and attention management and, and how important it is to be able to have sustained attention. I think the other coin of that is having integrity with your word. And that's what I mean by honesty. And if we're able to look at people and say something like, it was great to see you. And that's it, right? It was great to see you. Not, it's great to see you. I'll call you sometime. I'll send you that email. I'll do this other thing and like constantly add garbage to our lives by promising, making all these broken promises. If we have integrity and honesty, and that even means honesty about ourselves. Like I got on stage the other day and I said, you know what? I'm a sweaty person. So I might have some pit stains and I don't care. And it's okay. As long as we have an honesty and integrity about looking inside of ourselves and being like, what is it that's actually true for me? What am I willing to put up with? What am I willing to stand for? And what do I not do? And can my words match that core of who I am? I think that makes somebody unmistakable. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a very fitting end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Sure. All my stuff is online at sarahkpeck.com. It's all on my website. Um, and that's that's the moniker I use all over the internet. So Twitter is Sarah K. Peck. Instagram is Sarah K. Peck. And, um, and then my, my newest work is um, a media company called Startup Pregnant. So it chronicles the year of being pregnant while working at a startup and having my first kid and, and how the creative process of birthing kids, birthing companies, whatever it is, is transformative. And it actually has a lot related. So if people want to read about that, they can find me at Startup Pregnant. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.